Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida defines the boundaries of the modern era. I do think it is important that we continue to explore. That's what we were meant to do as human beings, and uh, we ought not to let anything get in our way of pushing the boundaries to continue to explore in every way that we can. We'll look at the World War I papers of Hamilton R. Horsey. Hamilton Horsey was uh, born in Tallahassee in 1888, uh, but he grew up in Tampa. And it was in Tampa in 1915 uh, that he decided to join the Florida National Guard. And we'll talk about rum runner Bill McCoy. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Established in 1565, St. Augustine is the oldest continuously occupied city in the United States. From the European settlement of the New World to America's manned exploration of space, Florida defines the boundaries of the modern era. In the late 1400s, Spain was unified under Ferdinand and Isabella, who funded the first European exploration and settlement of what they thought of as the New World. In 1513, Ponce de Leon literally put Florida on the map and gave our state its name. Historian and author Jim Cusick. That voyage uh, is documented, fairly well documented, but mostly in accounts that uh, come much later than the voyage itself. Uh, and there's still a great deal of controversy and a great deal of debate as to where Ponce de Leon first comes uh, and uh, makes landfall and comes ashore in Florida. Uh, we know it's along the, the Atlantic coast. We know it's more than likely somewhere between uh, the Cape, uh, Cape Canaveral, and uh, uh, areas just south of Jacksonville, somewhere in there. Um, having done that, he explores a little bit to the north, uh, turns around, goes down uh, and rounds uh, the tip of Florida and goes over to what the area that's now Charlotte Harbor and Fort Myers and explores there. He comes into contact with numerous Native American groups, the Ais uh, on the Atlantic coast, the Calusa on the west coast. Um, and, uh, and then also kind of goes back out and explores part of the Caribbean and the islands and then, um, and then returns to report his findings. 
Ponce de Leon returned to Florida in 1521, hoping to establish a colony, but his efforts were rejected by one of the many sophisticated tribes of Native Americans who had been living here for thousands of years. The Calusa Indians of southwest Florida attacked the settlers and Ponce de Leon died from his injuries. Other Spanish explorers came to Florida in the following decades, seeking land, wealth, and slaves. Susan Parker is executive director of the St. Augustine Historical Society. There's um, Narvaez who, you know, comes at least to make an exploration attempt, perhaps with the idea of, of later settling. Of course, the better known one, of course, is Hernando de Soto, who comes through Florida and 14 other states. Um, and then we have the ill-fated um, attempt to s establish Pensacola. Probably would have been successful, except for the bad timing of arriving just at the same time, almost as a hurricane. And the hurricane sunk most of the ships, destroyed most of their supplies and their food. They did hang on for a year and a half, um, always starving. I always think it's interesting how people starve for a year and a half. But because everybody's always starving. It's like you can't starve for that long. But that's the report. Possibly because what they were left to eat, they felt as if they were starving. It was not what was familiar. It's not what they, they had expected. And after the Pensacola debacle, you know, Spain rather lost interest in Florida. It seemed like it was not perhaps the place to try to make, to establish a permanent foothold on the North American mainland. Um, the French try to make their own attempt in 1562. They arrive probably off the, off the coast of Florida, near Jacksonville, go on up to South Carolina, you know, hang around for a while, leave their mark, and then two years later come back and establish Fort Caroline in 1564. With the French establishing a foothold in what the Spanish considered to be their territory, interest in establishing a permanent Spanish settlement in Florida was quickly rekindled. The fact that the French were Protestant Huguenots made the Catholic Spanish even more determined to reclaim Florida. Don Pedro Menendez de Avales eliminated the French colonists and established St. Augustine as the first permanent European settlement in what is now the United States. I think what's so amazing about St. Augustine is after 450 years of being a, uh, an active town that people live in, it's still here and it's still tiny. It's, it's survived not as a big metropolis, but as a tiny, tiny little place for 450 years. That's incredible. There's not that many places that in, anywhere in the world, really, that you can say have done that. Um, and if you walk around the town today, uh, you can get a sense, I think, still of what the colonial era was like here, because the scale of the town is still um, very... Uh, uh, old. It's, it's, it's got a 19th century skyline. There's no skyscrapers here. I mean, yes, if you go out to the beach, you'll have tall condominium buildings and things. But, uh, but there, you know, there are, there's, there are no, uh, the, the tallest building here is the 1920s bank building, basically. And everything uh, else is uh, earlier than that and much uh, lower in height than that. And the streets are the same size. I mean, they're a challenge for modern uh, vehicular traffic because they're so narrow and the sidewalks are high and they're narrow, but that's because, you know, they're, they're really built on the colonial scale. And so that, that's something that I think is very unique is that, you, you know, when you walk into this town, I mean, uh, you know, it's still guarded by a 17th century stone fort.
Nobody should leave St. Augustine without visiting Castillo de San Marcos, the, the Spanish fortress. It's the oldest Spanish fortress in the United States. It was uh, begun in 1672, you know, almost 350 years ago. Um, it's, there, you know, you can still find them in other parts of Latin and Spanish America, but it's definitely, it wasn't unique at the time. You know, there were lots of them similar to this. Um, there's a very large one, of course, in Havana, Cuba, that looks like, this looks like a small version of it. There's one of Matanzas, there's, there's some along the south coast of Cuba, and all over Latin America, but this is the one um, in, 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 in the U.S., in the North American mainland. While the colonization of Florida is an important element establishing the beginning of the modern era, most contemporary people would probably feel lost in that world. If we were suddenly sent back into the 16th century, uh, we would be in a foreign land, a foreign universe, basically. Um, and so foreign that we would not even know how to put our clothes on. I mean, that's how foreign it would be. I mean, how many, how many men today know how to put on a doublet or hose or, um, you know, a rough collar? And how many women would know how to put on the, you know, the, all the underskirts that uh, women wore in those days? Um, uh, or even to put your shoes on because they wouldn't have been, you know, lace shoes or flip-flops or things like that. Um, everything about that, that world would have been, would be foreign to us. We wouldn't know how to do anything. Uh, that comes naturally to us now. Um, so when we talk about what people's attitudes are at that time, we have to remember that they had a totally different mindset. Uh, there were a lot more superstitions at that time. Uh, the uh, religion, uh, regardless of where you were in, your, in Europe, you know, uh, religion and the church and faith played a much bigger role in, uh, in life. Uh, was much more physically present. Uh, you know, among the first things that happened here was the building and the construction of churches and then later of, of friaries and, and conventos and things like that. Um, and of course, there's, you know, the, the whole mindset of how the world works is very different. I mean, you know, they, there's, there's just not the kind of information that we would have today. Historians, humanities scholars, and sociologists say that the moment Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, the modern era ended and the postmodern age began. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. I'm going to step off the lamb now. As the first steps on the moon were taken on July 21, 1969, Neil Armstrong inspired future generations of astronauts. I remember sitting in front of my television watching those old grainy pictures come about when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. I was actually home, I was a freshman in college, I was 18 years old. Uh, 17, almost 18 years old. Anyway, I, I remember when it happened. I was sitting in the living room watching the television pictures along with millions of other people around the world. And I can remember again how exciting that was. Winston Scott became a NASA astronaut, serving on two shuttle missions, making two spacewalks, and spending nearly 25 days in space. When we launched on the space shuttle, 
Uh, you've been lying on your back for a couple of hours now, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. You've got that big bulky suit on. You're in a heads-down position. You've been training for a year or more. All you want to do is get the show on the road. You hope nothing happens and you have to abort and come back the next night. But when you're lying there and it finally happens, you can hear the countdown. You can see the countdown on your instrument, and all of a sudden, all this smoke and fire begins to billow up around the windshield. The engines are, are, are firing and smoke and, and, and shaking and vibrating but nothing's happening yet. This is seven seconds. And all of a sudden the clock hits zero and it leaps off the pad. It doesn't rise in slow motion the way it looks on TV. It jumps off the pad, sorry, it kicks you in the back and it's shaking and vibrating and you accelerate, it, it pushes you back into your seat. And uh, the, the acceleration is tremendous. The entire ride from Earth to orbit is only eight and one half minutes. So it is an incredible ride. There's nothing else in existence that goes like the rocket. Stars guided the navigators aboard the Spanish ships that came to Florida in the 16th century, many sailing past Cape Canaveral. The astronauts launched into space from Cape Canaveral have a different perspective on the universe. The stars do look different. They're brighter, they're clearer, and they take on more of a three-dimensional effect. Some look closer than others, which, which they are, of course, but you, you can see it more readily than you can on Earth. Uh, also, the constellations, look brighter and clearer, you know, even, you know, we're still long distance from them, but, but looking at the constellations again, the, the clarity is what's so amazing. And uh, if you never leave Earth, it's impossible to perceive just how clear things are up there because we don't look through any atmosphere. So you have the stars, and depending on when you're there, and, and uh, you can see other planets. Because I can remember looking out and seeing Mercury and seeing Venus. Earth, of course, was right beneath me. So you, you get that perspective up there. Just, uh, just, it's so different from viewing, viewing them from down here. The same brave impulse that allowed European explorers to climb aboard ships and sail across the ocean to unknown destinations, including Florida, is alive and well today. I can imagine what it would be like to be on the first crew going off to Mars. Now that would be cool because you kind of sort of maybe know objectively what's going to happen, but you don't really know because nobody's done it before. I do think it is important that we continue to explore. That's what we were meant to do as human beings. And uh, we ought not to let anything get in our way of pushing the boundaries to continue to explore in every way that we can. We spoke with colonial-era historians Jim Cusick and Susan Parker and astronaut Winston Scott. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here the Hamilton R. Horsey papers dealing with Florida's involvement in World War I. Yeah, that's right. But before we get to that, we kind of have to back up and we talk about the uh, state militia here in Florida, what we now refer to as the Florida National Guard, uh, and the idea of a, of a citizen soldier. Um, and, and technically, that idea goes back to you know ancient uh, Greece and Rome. But here in North America, it really starts in Florida uh, back in the 16th century in 1565, when the Spanish first settled St. Augustine. Uh, we had the first uh, official muster or the gathering of uh, the citizen soldiers to take up arms to protect the Spanish colony of, of Florida. Uh, so when we trace the lineage of, of state militias and the soldier that is uh, among the, the ranks of the civilians to protect a certain colony, it really goes back to the beginnings here uh, in the 16th century. And throughout the, the 1600s, uh, there were a series of raids on St. Augustine and the Spanish settlements here in Florida from other uh, colonial powers, the, the English, uh, uh, namely, and uh, also a number of privateers and, and uh, pirates who would attack St. Augustine routinely. Uh, and there was a need for the uh, citizenry to take up arms and, and to protect the colony. During the British period, there were a number of uh, loyalist regiments that were uh, raised from the ranks of the uh, uh, young men who were uh, British loyalists living in Florida who would take up arms to uh, to quell the rebellion, uh, which uh, of course led to the, the birth of the United States, but Florida was still a, a loyalist colony. Uh, so we have this long lineage of, of centuries, really, of the part-time soldier living within the Florida territory, taking up arms to, to defend that territory, and, and in some uh, instances being called up for uh, a broader cause. So if we fast forward a little bit into the mid-19th century, uh, during the American Civil War, Florida, of course, seceded from the Union and, and was uh, a part of the Confederate States of America. But there were thousands of, of Florida soldiers who were conscripted, but many who actually joined the Florida State Militia, the Florida, uh, what we now call the Florida National Guard, and fought uh, in campaigns throughout uh, throughout the battle, you know, with the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, fought in the Western campaigns, and, and a number of those Florida soldiers, uh, of course, never returned. Uh, but that leads us into the, the 20th century uh, in 1903, when the United States uh, tried to, to standardize a lot of these state militias, and Florida being one of those uh, participating states, and uh, the state militia really became uh, a unified National Guard, very similar to what we see today. And Hamilton Horsey was one of these uh, citizen soldiers. Yeah, that's correct. This collection is really a, a great snapshot of uh, what life was like for a young officer, really at the at the uh, turning point when the state militia was uh, uh, kind of reorganizing into, as I just mentioned, into uh, uh, more of a federal standardized uh, force in 1903. Hamilton Horsey was uh, born in Tallahassee in 1888, uh, but he grew up in Tampa, and it was in Tampa in 1915 uh, that he decided to join the Florida National Guard. Uh, he was uh, commissioned as an officer, a second lieutenant, uh, in 1915, and shortly after joining, uh, he was uh, called up to federal service. This time, uh, they weren't going overseas. They were actually sent to the Texas-Mexico border uh, during what we call the, uh, uh, at the time was known as a punitive expedition, we now call um, the uh, Mexican Border Wars. Uh, this is the, the instance when uh, Pancho Villa, this is during the Mexican Revolution, when uh, Pancho Villa was routinely raiding uh, uh, into the, the settlements in the southern states. 
So the federal government decided to put this new militia system to test, and they called up uh, a few battalions of, of Florida National Guardsmen, uh, Horsey being being among them, and he was sent to Laredo, Texas, and he spent about six months uh, patrolling the border. So they never uh, actually fired a shot, but they kind of cut their teeth and, and really had their first opportunity uh, kind of to become part of this larger federal force and join with uh, these citizen soldiers from around the country. So it wasn't just Floridians, but they were uh, involved in, in you know, tactical movements with soldiers from around the country. And it kind of led up to uh, some of the experiences that they would have uh, in the First World War. So in mid-1917, of course, the United States declared war on, on Germany and uh, became directly involved in, in the First World War, a conflict that had been raging since 1914 and really had enveloped the continent of Europe. Uh, and the United States was calling on these small state forces uh, to assemble, to reorganize, uh, and to quickly uh, train thousands of, of young men to travel to Europe and fight. And the Florida National Guard, of course, is, is still actively serving today. Yeah, that's correct, Ben. The uh, uh, Florida National Guard and the Florida Air National Guard, they have uh, approximately 10,000 uh, young men and women uh, from around the state of Florida who are, are called to action not only to defend the, the state's interests, but again, to uh, help protect in times of national crisis. You know, during the, the global war on terrorism here currently, uh, Florida National Guardsmen and uh, Air National Guardsmen have been called up and, and are currently uh, uh, serving around the world. But also in times of natural disaster, uh, the National Guard is called up to come in in, in times of, of need, you know, to uh, uh, airlift in supplies. Um, we see that, especially here in Florida, after major hurricanes. Um, in the late 19th century, they were utilized or called up quite a bit for um, uh, the control of, of riots. So there were a lot of labor riots at that time. So they, uh, the, the role of the National Guard has, has changed a little bit, but um, it essentially is the same as it was back in 1565, you know, to protect the territory. And we appreciate their service. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida history is full of colorful characters. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at one of them, rum runner Bill McCoy. I think it's very likely that he was operating around Daytona Beach. Um, he may not have been always going directly into Daytona Beach, but the thing is, at the end of the day, there's only so many places that you're picking up the liquor from and then you're going to distribute it wherever the market is. Um, so certainly Jacksonville would have been a place. Um, I know they were running rum into St. Augustine, so I presume they were running it into Daytona as well. So, yeah, I would, I would say it's definitely within the realm of probability that he was off Daytona delivering booze. That was John Beal, education coordinator at the Florida Maritime Museum in Cortez, Florida. I talked to him about the Depression-era rum runner Bill McCoy. He told me about how McCoy got into the rum running business. Well, Bill McCoy um, was born in New York, but he's, I think, kind of more associated with Florida. He had a, when he moved to Florida, he had a boatyard in Holly Hill, uh, which is near Daytona, and also had a boatyard in Jacksonville. He built boats 
um, for the better part of 20 years leading up to Prohibition and built them for some pretty famous people, including the Carnegies and the Vanderbilts. Sort of what leads them into Prohibition or into uh, rum running is that in the 1920s, trucks were becoming more common, they were becoming more reliable, more roads were going in. So things that had been shipped by small boats on a local scale were starting to go by truck over road instead. And so he was looking for a different way to make money. And uh, Prohibition was definitely a way to do that. And probably part of why he's so strongly affiliated with rum running and Prohibition is the reputation that he developed. What he brought for liquor was always what it said on the bottle. Uh, there were a lot of people that made counterfeit liquor, but you sort of knew when you were buying from Bill McCoy that what you were buying was actually what you were buying. McCoy started in Daytona, but made his name in the Northeast by servicing Rum Row. Beale tells me about how Rum Row operated. Rum Row, uh, well, there are multiple Rum Rows all over the place. Basically, what a Rum Row is, is a collection of large freight vessels, usually older vessels, anchored far enough offshore that they're outside U.S. waters, registered to a country that isn't the United States, and that way the Coast Guard can't go aboard them, even though that's obviously what they're there for is to sell liquor. Um, but they're legally protected that way. And they were sort of floating warehouses. So these big ships would wait offshore with all the booze on board, and then smaller boats could run out to them and pick that up. McCoy had a reputation and even myth that surrounded him. Beale explains about the world of counterfeit liquor during the Prohibition era. He was operating, it's interesting, he was approached a couple times by criminal organizations. Um, in one case, he was even basically told, you know, if you'd buy a bigger boat, we would deal with you because then you could carry enough cargo to supply our needs. But he never really wanted to get into um, the big scale stuff. He was happy running his boat and making what he could doing that. He never wanted to really be involved with the big criminal organizations. So there were people that were doing that, that were you know, collecting from all over and then delivering somewhere else. But he was kind of going where he could to get the, the quality and quantity of the liquors that he wanted to be able to carry and then bringing them to wherever. And generally he didn't put in, he functioned kind of like Rum Row, um, but just with his individual boat and with the Arethusa, there's actually a, a reporter who went on it off of New York, and he said that the inside was set up like a liquor store with shelves and everything on shelves, and tasting was encouraged. Um, so it's really kind of interesting. It's a very different approach than a lot of the other folks did. Um, I mentioned before about the, the counterfeiting, and uh, the estimates are as high as 75% of what was coming in off Rum Row was counterfeit. And how that would work is the ship would have a big tank full of grain alcohol. You'd go up and place your order. They'd pick through their bottles to find the ones that were the closest to uh, what you had actually ordered. They'd pick up their counterfeit labels. They'd fill the bottles with grain alcohol and a dye and flavoring to get it close to um, what you were actually asking for. And then that's what you were actually getting was basically flavored grain alcohol, not scotch or whiskey or whatever. Since Bill McCoy had a reputation for selling genuine liquor, he was the real McCoy. That was John Beale. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, The History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.